You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hello, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. (coughs) But I'm actually talking about Harry Tarantula. It's that time of year. It's Halloween. So you know this means... Harry Tarantula's Halloween party. They're going to have 10% off everything. Everything in the store is going to be on sale. And there's going to be even deeper discounts. There's going to be a haunted house. There's going to be a costume party. And the whole Speech Bubble crew will be there. Because we'll be recording a live episode of Speech Bubble direct from Harry Tarantula. The festivities at the Halloween party are happening from October 26th to the 28th, starting at 1 o'clock p.m. So get down to 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast needs met. With me today is the wonderful local geek girl legend, Sam Maggs. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> she, she writes Wonder Women, the book, also Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy, and her latest one that she's doing is called Girl Squads. She also writes comics, Gem and the Holograms, Star Trek. You might have seen her hosting on Cineplex when you go see a movie, Inner Space, uh, Nerdist. She's just all over the place. So welcome, Sam. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing really good. That was a great introduction. Thank- you should follow me around everywhere. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank absolutely. You. So I wanted to get to know you a little bit better. Okay. How, where did you Where did you grow up and how did you first become a geek girl? I grew up in London, Ontario, which is about two hours south of Toronto. Nice. Um, and I became a geek because my parents were really big geeks. They saw um, Star Wars A New Hope like 20 times when it was in the theaters in the 70s. Oh, wow. And I guess instead of rebelling and getting into like football or something, I just sort of went with it and decided to also be a nerd. So I uh, I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So then, and then you started like getting into it as a job. Yeah. What is it like transitioning from an actual fan? to actually being a representative at the conventions and that kind of stuff. You know what? I'm really glad that I was a fan first and that I attended conventions as a fan first because it helps me to know, like, you know, I I still go stand in line to get people's autographs. I still go to panels. Um, so when I'm moderating a panel or when I'm doing a signing, I try to, like, think about, okay, what do I want from a panel when I'm in the audience? What do I want from a signing when I go up to the table and I meet someone for the first time, you know? And I try to kind of, like, do that. So I think it's really helped to give me a good perspective on just, like, how to be a good um, professional in this industry, I guess, in a way that's really respectful of the fans because you know the industry owes everything to the fans do you have any advice for guests when they're when they're uh, doing a signing for people 
Oh gosh, I don't know. I, for me, I think it's all about just being interested in people. Every single person who comes to my table has a really cool and interesting and unique story. And I love to learn about the people who come to see me. So it's always just fun to ask a lot of questions and get to know the folks who come to say hi. I love that. Nice. I noticed with all your books, they sort of focus on women and women's history. Yeah. How did you get into, into that? I did a master's degree in Victorian literature and like women in Victorian literature, weirdly enough, back in the day. So I've always really been interested in history and especially women's spot in history. So when I started to work on Wonder Women and Girl Squads, it was really cool for me to be able to go back and say like, you know, we only ever hear about women like Marie Curie and like maybe Ada Lovelace, but I know there were more women in history than those just two people. So it's been really cool for me to be able to go back and sort of reclaim some of that history that we never learn about in school because, you know, it's, it's great to be inspired by real women who did really cool things. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, in in girl squads, you focus on like women friends, female yeah. friends who like transformed history. Yeah. So, what's your favorite story of the people that you profile in, in the book? It's always such a hard question because like they're all so special to me. Uh, I really enjoy the story of the Chung sisters, who were two sisters in Vietnam in the year 1000, who fought back Chinese invaders on elephant back. That one's really cool. Um, the first female secular poets from medieval France. They were really neat. Um, I really like the story of the Patriotic Women's League of Iran from the 1920s. But I think my definite favorite story in the book is the one about Zora, which is Afghanistan's first all-female orchestra, and they exist right now. So that's actually pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, like, it's neat. Things are progressing in Afghanistan. That's so cool. It's pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, hashtag uh, squad goals for Thank sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyway, do you have your own girl squad? Like, who oh, do you yeah. hang out with? What do you do? What are what are your favorite things? Um, my mom is, like, the leader of my girl squad. She, we're at Fan Expo right now, and she's here with me at Fan Expo this weekend. She loves all things nerdy. She's an amazing supporter. We joke that she's, like, my PA and my manager, and I don't know what I would do without her. She's the best. And my group of friends are also so very nerdy and love all of this stuff. So we love to get together and play video games, marathon shows, go to movies together, talk about books. We're like a big pop culture nerds. So I'm very lucky to have a very supportive group of women around me all the time. And also a very supportive group of dudes who are like also really progressive and into, you know, advancing uh, things for women in, in all these cool geeky industries uh it's it's really awesome you're a champion for that kind of advancement so i wanted to talk to you about the comics industry because yeah. it is changing if it hasn't already i mean it used to be very male dominated yeah and uh, there used to not be a lot of women but now you're seeing all kinds of diversity in the comics medium what do you think of that it's really cool you know women have always been fans of comics and been comics readers but didn't always feel welcome in the places where they could express that like maybe didn't feel welcome in a comic book store or at a convention and now with social media, it's really cool because we're able to be visible and find each other and kind of like form our own communities of awesome women who love this stuff. And um, it's been great to be able to start creating our own books. You know, I always think about people like Kate Leth who started out by posting their art on Tumblr. And then it turned out there was an audience so hungry for it that she built up this huge audience and then was able to transition into mainstream publishing. And it just goes to show that like, 
there really is an audience for all different kinds of books. If you love Captain America, that's amazing. But if you're a Korean American girl and you want to be a superhero too, you can go read Silk now. And like, that's also amazing. I just, you know, comics and games and all these industries, there's such a huge and limitless medium that I don't think there should be any limit to what kinds of content we can create for people. And the industry is responding, not just in characters like Miss Marvel or Silk, like you mentioned, but also like comic shops are transforming. They're becoming more welcoming. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have rules at conventions like this, you know, cosplay isn't consent. Yeah. So what do you think of the safety transformation uh, that's happening here? It's really great. I think anything that we can do to make people feel more safe and more welcome, it's like, why shouldn't we do it? You know what I mean? For the people that it doesn't affect, then it's not hurting them and it's cool. And for the people that it does help or make feel safer, um, you know, why wouldn't we want to do that? I think that's cool. Comics are for everyone. Games are for everyone. Uh, and we should try to include as many different kinds of people as possible. And this is a comic podcast, so I have to ask you, I mean, you, you write in both mediums, comics yep. and literature. So what is the difference for you about doing comics and being a fan of comics, getting oh, to yeah. write Gem in the Holograms and Star Trek, and then doing a novel? What is that transition like? What is it like uh, to write both mediums? I'm pretty lucky in that the books that I write, so far at least, have been nonfiction. So they're very different things. You know, when you're telling a nonfiction story, you're still telling a story, but it's all kind of, you have the facts there to guide you whereas with fiction you get to be way more creative and kind of come up with these ideas yourself so I love doing both things because it keeps me on my toes and I never get tired you know not moving from nonfiction to comics and back and forth again it's great it, it keeps it fresh and otherwise sometimes I think writing can be a little like <laughs> exhausting after a while but no it's great it keeps it fresh were you okay mastering the script format for comics and collaborating with artists and stuff? oh I don't know if I've mastered it at all but I love collaborating that's part of what I love about writing for video games so much is you work with so many different types of people and so with comics working with an editor and working with an artist it's amazing because you know I only have so many ideas I I'll bring my own experience to the table but the artist is so great at knowing what looks good on the page, what works. They have their own ideas that comes from their own experience and the editor too. So between that group of people, you make something that really is a vision between, you know, that, that kind of trio. And it's really nice. I like that a lot. And finally, I forgot to mention that you were a senior writer for Insomniac Games. Yeah, yeah. But when you write for games, you have to think about what the player is doing. Yeah. So how do you get inside the player's head and figure out, like, how I mean, to make I it interactive? I play a lot of games, but it is really tough. I mean, one of the challenges in games is like just making sure that you are making things fun at all times. I think the, the main challenge with games is that like everything has to serve fun first. So if you write something and it's like a great story moment, but it's going to be really boring, then it's it's going out the door. It's it does it's not serving the main purpose of the game. But I love it. It's such a fun challenge. Um, and you know, working on Spider-Man is like getting to work on comics and video games at the same time. So it's perfect. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming Thank by. Thank you, Aaron. And for all our listeners, t tell uh, everyone to subscribe to the podcast. And right after this, we have Megan Purdy. So listen to that right now. With me today... We have the founder of Women Write About Comics. She also works on the MNT, which is a comic book 
uh, newsletter. She's a comic journalist who's worked for Comic Book Resources, Comics Alliance, all the usual suspects of comic book journalism. But her big thing is she's the associate editor of the Toronto Comics Anthology, As Good as Gold. So uh, please welcome Megan Purdy. How are you, Megan? I'm great. How are you? Good to talk to you. Uh, you come highly recommended from the staff at uh, Toronto Comics Anthology. And uh, comics journalism is always something that I wanted to break into when I was starting out after getting my journalism degree at Ryerson. It never quite worked out for me. I could never really get into the whole CBR, Comics Alliance type system. And after talking to Andrew Wheeler a few episodes back, I sort of quizzed him because he was like the last editor of Comics Alliance and he also works on Toronto Comics Anthology. For my guests who are comic journalists, I like to ask them like, how did you get into comics journalism? Because I totally failed at like breaking into comics journalism. So, so yeah, how did that happen? I just went and started my own blog to start. Um, and I was focusing on interviewing women in comics because that was just my thing. Um, and I also had uh, associated with it a blog carnival, which is where you work with other bloggers to um, have a whole bunch of posts come out on the same day on a specific topic. So it's just like kind of a net fun networking thing. And that kind of grew. And a couple of my friends came on um, and it kept growing and growing and more people joined and it became Women Write About Comics. That's awesome. Um, and from there, I got a lot of opportunities uh, all over the comics journalism space. Um, and so I've written for Comics Alliance, CBR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You sort of basically became your own authority and then people started coming to you type thing. Yeah, I guess. It's kind of like when you start a podcast in order to get a book deal or you start like a very specific project uh, to prove your expertise rather than, I don't know, applying straight out of the gate. Yeah, like this. Because like, I, I didn't go to journalism school, actually. I went to school for English and political science and now I edit comics. Uh, so I just kind of proved my expertise on my own. That's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of what this podcast is, because like, since nobody was going to assign me comic yeah. pieces, we just started this podcast and it keeps me connected to the Toronto Comics community. And I get to, you know, use my skills as a journalist to interview people that I know. So yeah, that's kind of I, I'm totally with you on the whole start your own thing if no one is. So when are you gonna you. when are you gonna pitch a book? <laughs> that that'll come next. I guess we have to have we have a lot of guests, so I could I could pitch a book if I wanted to. Yeah, you totally could. Yeah. Essays and interviews. Yeah, it'd be so cool. So um Starting out, though, I'm mapping out your whole career yeah, for you exactly. here. Sorry. I also work in HR in my day job. So nice <laughs> A little uh, career counseling here. That's awesome. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I never thought of that until just now. But you're right. I could totally make the podcast into a book. The book idea is germinating as you're listening to this right now. <laughs> just thank me in the acknowledgement. <laughs> I definitely will. I definitely will. You could edit it because you're hey, you're a pretty I'm good editor, right? Yeah. Nice. So how did you initially get into comics? You said earlier that like women in comics is your thing. How did that become your thing? Um, so I started reading comics when I was a kid with my dad. We would read the, the newspaper comics and we'd lie down on the living room floor and read them together and he'd explain any words that I, I, I didn't get or whatever. Um, and then I moved on to Archie comics and that was like my big comic for a while until I discovered X-Men. Um, and X-Men is great because it's so domestic a lot of the times, and there's a ton of female characters that are awesome and strong and get their own storylines, which is still somewhat rare in a lot of big line superhero comics. There's still a lot of like girlfriends and tragic girls that, you know, meet a bad end and come back as a superhero. 
But X-Men was a little bit different. It gave them a lot more agency, and that was sort of what I stuck with for a long time. Uh, then I sort of moved on to other things. I started, I guess, once I got on the internet more. You know, once I was older, I got recommendations, Avengers, all that other crap. And... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm always interested primarily in female characters or other marginalized characters. Um, I'm not really into the stories of, you know, middle-aged white dudes or, you know, the Batmans and Spider-Mans who've been around forever. Yeah. Um, and as I went out into different kinds of comics, I really started to notice the names on the books were still so often just the same guys over and over and over again. Like you'd get one dude who'd be drawing like 20 books at Marvel. Um, or just be the same tiny pool. Um, so then I became really interested in the people behind the comics and um, finding women who are making comics, editing comics, that kind of thing. And so from there, when I started my own blog, I, it was easy to figure out what I wanted to blog about and who I wanted to talk to, which was other ladies making comics. Because when you started, the landscape wasn't what it is now in terms of people talking about uh, minority representation and female representation for comics, right? Like, when you first started your blog, what was the landscape like? Uh, not not great. Um, I guess it was a little bit before what a lot of people think of as the first golden age of Comics Alliance. I think we, we predate that. Um, and when I worked on other projects before that, it was very much in that kind of like nasty blogger era um, where you think of like the Chris Sims Invincible Superblog and that kind of stuff. Um, where's a lot of like feuding and so forth. And there's not a lot of prominent female bloggers. But when we started, and then when Comics Alliance really started ramping up, and actually, I think when Laura Hudson took over and started putting women forward, um, and other marginalized uh, writers, it started to change. But definitely when we started, it was a lot of guys, a lot of white guys. So explain to our listeners sort of what you alluded to in terms of what is the golden age of Comics Alliance, and what was sort of the this era that you're talking about with the Invincible Superblog and that sort of thing. What was the landscape of uh, comic journalism? Can you describe sort of the sure. major players? Um, so when I first started blogging about comics, it was actually under a pseudonym, which I won't share because I don't want to associate with that blog because um, women and girls in that era got trolled a lot. Uh, and I don't want any of those enemies to come back to me. Right. But um, in the era where, like, you'd see um, David Brothers at Fourth Letter, uh, Chris Sims at Invincible Superblog. There was like Ragnall and Kalinara. Like these are some of like the bigger bloggers at the time. And then like legitimate comics journalism that wasn't just bloggers was like CBR, Newsarama, and the Comics Journal, very different audiences, extremely male dominated, extremely white dominated. So I think blogging started to open it up, but even that was still, you know, like the good old boys a lot of the time. Then Comics Alliance and obviously blogs like mine, um, started to change the landscape. Um, and you would see, I, I think Comics Alliance did a really good job of like plucking those kinds of bloggers off of their blogs and giving them more prominence, which helped to change the landscape so much faster right. if they hadn't done that and sort of given that veneer of legitimacy, which they should have had anyway. Um, I don't think the comics journalism landscape would have changed as quickly. And so I think that was like the first golden era of the first golden age of Comics Alliance. And then they were going to close because they were getting sold. Yeah. Um, and then at like the last minute, their editor in chief bought them out and arranged a deal with one of these terrible. AOL, I think. Yeah. Didn't they, right. Didn't they get bought by AOL at one I point? I think that was the first one. Okay. Yeah. Right? And then of course, AOL was terrible and they were going to like shut it down again. Yeah. And that was like the end of the that golden age. And then it was bought by another content farm type company. And then it came under Andy Curry. 
Oh yeah, he sounds familiar to me. He wrote like some books on like Miracle Man and and prominent uh he's a dc editor now yeah yeah which was like such a natural choice because all of his work was like you know finding this artist like he was so good at discovering people right right and then they turned it over to janelle aslan and andrew wheeler and that was kind of i think the last golden age of comics lines until it completely died right and there's no one to sell it to it's still owned by the same company they just sort of have it on ice right okay yeah, I think Andrew told us that. Like, basically, he was the last active editor, mm-hmm. but you can still go to Comics Alliance as if it's an active site and read everything on it, but no new content is being published, right? Right, right. They oh. just have it on ice. I think eventually they're probably going to repurpose it for something else. Because mm-hmm. um, if you've ever looked at the contracts in comics journalism, uh, generally they're not good. <laughs> I don't actually recommend necessarily getting into comics journalism at a site like a Newsarama or a Comic Science, et cetera, unless you read the contracts very clearly, because when they're owned by one of these content farms, um, the contract's really exploitative. At Comic Science, for example, they own all of the content, including your image as a writer. So like the brand that you've created uh, during your tenure there, they own, and uh, they have all rights for republication, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So if you get a column and you want to take that column somewhere else, you can't take that column anywhere. You can't. Anywhere. I mean, you could, and just hope they don't bother to see you, which I don't think they will because they're not the most attentive corporate overlords. Right. But. Wow, that's that's awesome. To me, like, just to educate, like, our, our listeners, I mean, the Comics Journal is sort of more independent, more, like, uh, they don't really focus on, like, mainstream comics, but, like, CBR, Comic Book Resources, and Comics Alliance did. Mm-hmm. Comics Alliance, I think Andrew said, was trying to bring, like, a comics journal sensibility to mainstream comics in the sense of, like, real criticism, real real features, real discussion, mm-hmm. less typing press releases and those sorts of things that CBR was known for doing, right? Yeah, of course, the problem for Comics Alliance is that they were owned by this other company that demanded um, a certain amount of returns on every article. um, And the best way to get a lot of traffic really quickly is to do lists. Right. Um, So they're constantly being saddled with this necessity to do terrible empty listicles like listicles don't have to be bad but they're looking for the most you know controversial or eye-catching titles and like if you read cbr regularly there's a lot of good writing on it but there's also these terrible lists like i don't know 18 times hulk humped an object um or like 10 hottest underage cosplayers and you're like what no right but it's like a corporate directive that they have to live with so even when they're doing like really good writing it does sometimes tarnish the good work that comics journalists are doing yeah and and that's happening across the internet it's not just in comics journalism like there's listicles and all that kind of stuff everywhere because your corporate overlords only care about the hits and they only care about the page turns and page views and stuff like that right i would just say that the difference in comics journalism is that it's very it's very small community um and the margins are really small so um unless you're writing for a larger outlet like say guardian vice even paste um the pay isn't that great uh like the upfront pay like you're getting your traffic bonus which makes it worth your while but the upfront pay is not great um and there are a lot of exploited and you have to rely more on traffic than like a guardian would have to in in terms of making your money right it's like it's like being a waiter that gets tipped yeah absolutely you have to gear your articles 
towards what you think will get that traffic bonus rather than necessarily doing like the best idea you have. It has to be the best idea that will also get a lot of traffic. And for the site as well, they can't necessarily approve like your coolest projects because they don't have a lot of money to spend on loss leaders. So they can't approve your like 10 part investigative uh, report on, I don't know, bad contracts in comics because they're not going to get enough traffic and, and everything else is not making enough money to justify that. Which means that in-depth journalism and feature writing uh, gets eroded and goes away. Absolutely. And then even at a place like Comics Journal, um, which is owned by Fantagraphics, uh, so it's not actually truly independent, even at a place like that, th- there isn't really a huge audience for that kind of industry reporting. The thing that they're primarily interested in is usually like interviews with really indie creators. Um, so they have their own bubble and their right. own audience to contend with. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or And in those interviews, they seem to like to criticize the mainstream a lot in terms <laughs> of in terms of, you know, we're here, we're doing the high row stuff and like they're a little bit more low row. Like that's sort of what they what they trade on a little a little bit, it seems. Yeah, I think they're often um <laughs> so comics journalism or the the comics journal is actually I think much better today than it was ten years ago. It was like supremely annoying to me ten years ago, um, especially in like how white guy it was. And it's part of the reason why I created Women Write About Comics because they did another one of those articles that was like, "Where are the women in comics?" I'm like, guys, come on, you even publish women in comics, like get real, right? But yeah, they're definitely they're definitely convinced that they're the most highbrow and uh, elite of critics and comics, right, which right. I mean, sometimes it's true, like that they do, they can bring in experts. Um, but other times, you know, it's just kind of a circle jerk. Yeah, 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 totally. So tell me about women write about comics. That's sort of what your blog became. If I go there, what kind of content am I going to see? What makes you different than, uh, I guess, generally what you'd see in comics journalism? You're going to find all kinds of content there, except not much news. We don't really do news because in order to make news worth your while, you, you actually do need to be paid for it. And it is still an all-volunteer blog. Um, so we published now, I think, over 250 women in non-binary uh, comics creators and journalists and hobby bloggers. Um, we do reviews, we do features, we do a lot of in-depth um, features, uh, series, big investigations into all kinds of comics. One of the things that is kind of like our guiding principle is that comics is comics is comics. So we think all forms of comics published in all ways is immensely valuable and we don't want to silo it. So we don't want to be like, this is the web comic scene. This is the highbrow scene. We're just going to smash it all together and let the reader figure out what they're interested in. So we're really interested in helping the readers get out of that bubble that they might have been stuck in and discover more of what's out there in comics. And of course, to discover um, more marginalized creators. Yeah, that's awesome. I do feel like it's kind of a golden age for marginalized creators right now. Uh, And also representation because, you know, the mainstream companies are trying to be more representative. Uh, Obviously, you're seeing a lot of pushback. Like, we're like, Comics Gate is a thing. Oh, my goodness. Apparently. I mean, they're trying to make it a thing. It's mostly right now, it's just harassment of like a few select creators. And it's really vicious, but I don't think they've. I don't think they've managed to bring it to like Gamergate yeah, levels they yet, haven't and, I, and I hope risen. to God they don't. Yeah, exactly. But but we're seeing a sort of push pull between like the old establishment, the the white establishment that you're talking about, and a lot of like change and diversity and that and that sort of thing. Also, in terms of like 
you know, Thor is Thor is a woman and like that kind of thing. Like, they, like they're trying to make inroads. I mean, what is your assessment of? I, I of think they're trying, right um, but I think there are like structural problems at Marvel and DC primarily that make it so that it's hard for them to sustain that level of change. Right. Like Marvel, for example, is owned by like a Trump guy. <laughs> <laughs> or it's led by like a Trump guy yeah. um, and uh, their top editors are mostly guys. Um, they're mostly guys who grew up reading superhero comics from the direct market and that's primarily all that they're interested in. Right. So it makes it very hard for them to discover new creators who might have come up through web comics or indie or whatever that actually do have an interest in, you know, doing a Thor book or something and would be amazing, right. but they just don't even see those people. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of barriers to actually sustaining the change. I think you see a lot of attempts at change and then they sort of like peter out and then they reboot the whole thing and here's our new yeah, yeah. attempt at actually totally. improving things. It seems like too, there are bright spots, but they're sort of accidental, like yeah, Squirrel Girl, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. It's sort of things that like nobody expected to last, but have because because of sales, because of the secondary graphic novel bookstore market and that and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, I think sometimes the biggest successes for Marvel and DC are the ones that editorial wasn't paying that much attention to. You know, like it wasn't um, a book that they launched with a huge amount of publicity uh, and that they pushed. Instead, it was a book that some they convinced some junior editor that this was a cool idea. And they just kind of worked on it in the background and an audience grew and it, it became a hit mm -hmm. on its own. I think often that's the, the best way to have success at Marvel and DC. Yeah, but and it seems like a lot of those creators, like when they get frustrated with not being able to tell more diverse stories, they go to a place like Image to tell their own stories and stuff, right? Um, sometimes, I guess, like, Image is a weird company. It's not, it's not really like a publisher is how no. we think of Marvel and DC. It's kind of a vanity press, in fact. Right. Um, because you own all your own stuff if you Yeah, if you and they don't there. edit you at all. Yeah. And they don't curate your products very, very carefully. They just kind of, okay, you've been a success at Marvel or DC. Let's, let's do a book. And they kind of let you do whatever you want. And sometimes that works and you get really cool shit. And other times you get United States of Hysteria. Um, so Image doesn't really have a lot of brand control, which I think is to the detriment of a lot of those marginalized creators because you're sitting there on the shelf beside other books that could be like not what you want to be sitting beside right 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 exactly there's no there's no quality control not much yeah yeah totally and it's sort of random like it's up to the reader to find you and support you and yeah do that so kind of stuff. Um, I interview a lot of image creators, actually, um, and often what happens is that they'll approach me directly or they might have even hired outside PR to help them promote a book, which is how I ended up uh, chatting with the Moonstruck crew at uh, SDCC last year. Right. Um, and they were like Image's first YA book and Image didn't really quite know how to promote them. So they hired their an outside PR person to help promote it. Right. That's awesome. But it's also like their own money that they have to spend yeah. on it and stuff. And they also have to make a living off the book that they're selling and stuff. Absolutely. So it cuts into whatever profit margin they're planning to get, right? Yeah. Like Image is great in that um, it gives creators so much control, but it also leaves them on the hook a lot. There's not a lot of support. There's no advances, really. Right. Um, which you can get at some comics publishers. Better if you go through a book publisher because they have uh, the infrastructure to be able to give you no advance so you don't die of making your book right but yeah image sort of can leave you hanging sometimes nice nice 
So yeah, it's like it's an interesting landscape because there's there's not quite like the perfect company, the perfect solution, the perfect alchemy for things. And so we just I don't know, people are just starting to like figure it out. Seems like right now, I, I, I don't, think there's I don't a really lot of interesting know. combinations of techniques. Yeah. Like something that seems to be working well for a lot of people is um, starting out with anthologies, I guess, like mine uh, that are kickstarted, um, having a Patreon, and then trying to get in at companies like, say, Boom, IDW, Dynamite to do licensed comics. Um, so, like, you know, like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Transformers, or Transformers, that yeah. would be a great book for so many people. It's got really big readership. Adventure Time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and then that really gets you better gigs. Yeah, totally. Because it's like, oh, you worked on Adventure Time? Like, yeah, but you also got stability because you've got multiple streams of income, right? right. Like, you're still doing a, a bit of anthologies here and there to get a new audience. You're doing your web publishing. You're doing Patreon. You know, you've got to really spread yourself out like that. Because all, all comics creators basically are freelance, right? Right, exactly. So, as the founder of uh, Women Write About Comics, and you said it's all volunteer. Yeah. And you guys do some, like, really extensive stuff. So, how do you uh, sustain the motivation of your volunteers? Like, how how is it possible that, like, all these people are, like, working for free and doing, like, amazing journalism, investigative pieces, that sort of thing? Are they just that enthusiastic all the time? I mean, partly yes, because we only really want you to be working on your passion projects. We're not going to give you assignments because it's not really work, right? right. So I'm not going to be like, I'm sorry, but you have to review this horrible comic that you despise. Like, I'm not going to foist that upon you, right? right? But if you're working on passion projects, like really cool things that you're excited about that you've never been able to pitch somewhere, but you still want to do, then you will have the motivation to follow through on it. Right. Um, we've always been really careful not to overload people. Like if they're trying to to volunteer to review like 80 books, we're like, look, no, like let's do one thing at a time. Um, let's keep your passion uh, alive by limiting how much you're going to do because we can't pay you. So like, and for us to accept you reviewing like 80 books would be in- immensely exploitative, right? Right, exactly. Um, and all careful. of the, I'm also really, I've always been really transparent about um, money from the site, like how much we get from ads, where it goes. Basically, it's just a self-sustaining venture. So all the money goes right back into the site and we maintain an emergency fund for our writers. We can't like, we're almost to the point where we could pay you like, I don't know, a, a dollar or $2 for an article, but like, what's the point? Right, right. Yeah. It's almost insulting. So yeah. instead, we maintain an emergency fund so that we can help people out. Cool. So how would that work? Like if I'm in an emergency situation? You what? just come and be like, dude, like my fridge broke. <laughs> and then I'd give you some money. That's awesome. That's cool. But you told me uh, before we started recording that even though you founded the site, you're not kind of directly involved with it. You have a, you have a successor. Yeah, I'm transitioning out. I am transitioning out of Women Write About Comics. Um, I'm moving on to other projects and I'm passing it on to Claire Napier, who uh, was the first writer that I ever brought on to the site. Um, she's the new editor-in-chief. And then we've got sub-editors, uh, Kaylee Heron, uh, Kat Overland, who does small press, and Kate Tansky, who does like uh, library and academic stuff. Cool. And what is Claire's uh, experience outside your site? Like, did, has she edited other things before, or like she's just like one of the founding writers? So she came on a few months after I started the blog, and I guess I kind of trained her in blog editing. Uh, okay. um, but she's also been doing some editing of comics and uh, editing for a few cartoonists on a freelance basis. And a few years ago, she started. She started working as her day job as a uh, like a proofreader and a copy editor. Nice, that's awesome. Perfect person you want to have. Yeah. Editing your your blog and stuff. So, 
your role, I guess, is transitioning into like a more advisory role then? Well, I've been operating as sort of the publisher and in an advisory role for a few months now, but I'm going to completely cut ties soon, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Okay. I still love the site, but it's time for me to move on to other things. Um, I started a new site, so... Nice. And it's nice that. that you've grown something enough where you feel confident that like somebody can take it on without you and it'll still be there. It won't just shut down if you're not involved in it, right? Like that must make you feel immensely proud. Yeah, it's really nice to know that I've built a strong community that will survive without me guiding it you know like I, I know that Claire is going to take good care of it and when it's time for Claire to move on she'll put it into other hands mm -hmm. um, I think it's become pretty self-sustaining at this point it's big enough that it doesn't need you know like it doesn't need me anymore what were some of the big highlights uh, for women write about comics like things that you guys got outside notice for or things that you fought against throughout your history? Like, were there ever like big milestones in terms of like, oh, like we should really pay attention to this blog because look what they have done kind oh, of Oh man, we, we've been in like a few scraps over the years of fighting back against uh, things that were happening. Like there's so many that it's hard to remember. Like, do you remember that really gross Batgirl cover where Joker was like wiping blood on her face and yeah yeah it was he yeah. was trying to turn the blood into a smile it's just so creepy and they ended up pulling the cover mm -hmm. and the artist like apologized like yeah, that yeah. wasn't what he was intending to do the cover never actually got published because and thank the goodness was, because yeah, what were you thinking exactly because like, the it's a teenage was girl so like Kai come on amazing yeah it was and and for people who don't know and I don't know if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know I will I will tell you but you probably already do it wasn't just that like Joker was wiping blood on, uh, you know, Batgirl's face. It's the whole history between mm -hmm. the Joker and that character. Because in The Killing Joke uh, by Alan Moore, uh, it's the Joker who shoots uh, Barbara Gordon and turns her into uh, a disabled woman. And th there were a lot of crazy abuse connotations with that. Uh, the Killing Joke was one of the things that started the whole women in refrigerators yep. motif where uh, women are used as story devices in a marginalized way, like to kill the woman or torture the, the woman or abuse them to move the male character's story forward basically, right? Yeah, I think the the main one was Kyle Rayner's girlfriend literally found in the refrigerator so that he could experience angst and it could start a new story arc. Yeah, exactly. So so he grows as a character and she's Dead. stuck in a refrigerator <laughs> essentially for his benefit yeah. as a as a character, which is not a good look because, you know, women have agency and you know like that's, it's just it's just bad storytelling yeah. too, right? Like every character should have like a place in the story that's more than being a prop for another character. Right, right. And it it's lazy writing because it means that you basically run out of ideas for that character. Yeah, right? Like yeah. you're just going to be recycling it too, right? Because then you're going to give them somebody new to angst over. Like maybe it's like uh, their mother this time and next time it's like, I don't know, the girl that he's flirting with at the coffee shop. It just keeps going because... You just get trapped in that right, death right. spiral. And, you know, whether you're doing it, like, on purpose or not, it still has the same effect. Like, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you don't want to say, never write a story in which a woman is killed. Never write a story in which a woman is assaulted. Of course, we should still tell those stories. These are real things that happen. People are allowed to tell stories about them. But when you're 
you have to be really careful when you write about these things, right? Right, right. So when that cover was created, you guys were leading sort of the backlash against it? or I don't know if we were leading it, but we were one of the, we had one of the earliest pieces out about it. And then we turned it into a 10 part series because we had so many people who wanted to write about it. And it wasn't really like, we didn't intend to do a 10 part series to just show our disgust. Like it wasn't like that. It was just that people kept pitching um, pieces and they were all good ideas. And we all wanted them to have their voice. So it kind of grew into a whole big thing. Right. And I imagine that like when you put such a stake in like women write about comics, you're going to make yourself a target for people who don't agree with you, right? Um, sometimes yes. Although I will say that since I went from away from pseudonymous blogging to blogging under my own name and running women write about comics, I actually get trolled less than I did when I was a pseudonymous blogger. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't know if it's like, again, that sort of thin veneer of legitimacy that they don't attack as much. Maybe we don't seem like as much of a vulnerable target as like a smaller blog, but it's not quite as bad. Right. Cool. And we haven't really hit the radar of these comic skate jokers yet. So hopefully it'll stay that way. Yeah. I, I, I hope that I'm not uh, doing anything dun, by dun, broadcasting dun. this episode to make those guys aware of you. But. I mean, sometimes it's just chance, right? Like yeah. uh, sometimes they, sometimes you're just lucky and it misses you. Right. Like I was like momentarily swept away into Gamergate, but I escaped pretty quickly. Like the harassment did not continue. Right, right, right. And like, for those who don't know, I'm going to try to sort of summarize what Comicsgate is trying (laughs) to be. They're basically saying that like, it's due to uh, diversity in comics and creators who uh, are from minorities. That's why like big companies like Marvel and whatever aren't doing well. And like they are the reason that the industry is failing, not taking into account all the other market forces that have nothing to do with individual minority creators or what they're writing about or anything. It's like essentially all this diversity and stuff that is basically bringing down the comic book industry and they have taken upon themselves to try and do something about it. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, um, it's obvious that having more diverse offerings as a company means that you can appeal to a more diverse audience, which just means like obviously a bigger audience. So having more diverse books means you can actually potentially make more money. Um, And it's also obvious what's actually the cause of the problem for Marvel and DC, which is like 70% of it is the direct market and it's like inability to transform itself and move into the future. Right. Or or branch out more into like the bookstores and, and those sorts of places and that they're attract. Certainly, yeah. I mean, this, Marvel and DC are both trying. I think DC is doing a much better job. Like they're, they're doing YA books again and right. kids books, which is like the way to go. That's where the money is. Yeah. Like the best selling comics, like consistently for the last few years have been uh, Raina Telgemeier. Right. You uh, also, Smile and Sisters and stuff. You also have to build the future. And, yeah. And kids are the people that are going to be reading your comics into the future. Yeah, if you want somebody to be reading Batman in 50 years, like, you need to be making Batman picture books. Right. Exactly, exactly. Because that's part of the problem is that is that the old fan base has aged, mm-hmm. and that's mostly 
uh, who's reading comics. So all of the mainstream books or a lot of them are very like adult oriented and very like not for kids and have been for a long time. And also insular, like they really reward longtime readers, which is fine, but they're not as good at rewarding new readers. Um, and they're, Marvel is the worst for this, where they're constantly rebooting their entire line. Um, it makes it almost impossible to gain new readers, right? Because even if you, okay, so they reboot it. That's a great jumping in point. But it's a great jumping off point for everyone who came in on the last reboot. Right. And if, you, if you're, you're not used to having a form of media that keeps like, you know, killing itself and being reborn Phoenix-like, <laughs> then you don't really know how to deal with this as a reader. Like, you're a new comics reader. You just started reading X-Men. It's rebooted three times in the last five years. Maybe it's time to just leave and go, I don't know, watch wrestling instead, which is a soap opera where people punch each other very much like comics. Yeah, and it's, it's very frustrating because it's great when, you know, you're on your first reboot and you're like, great, I can start at number one. Yeah. And I can jump into Moon Knight. But let's say you're like reading a Moon Knight story and then all of the sudden in the middle of the story that you're reading, which you're really enjoying and the arc is going along, it starts again from scratch. And yeah. You're like, what the hell? I was reading that story. What, what happened? You know, like that's the frustrating thing about it because you can't follow a story that you're really enjoying without it falling off a cliff and like starting over again and yeah. you're like oh my god like am i even reading part of the same continuity or do i have to like start again like people get really confused and then and then just to like collect comics is tough oh my goodness because you you have to put uh, number ones on the shelf in the middle of like a run of numbers. So every time they go back to a number one to get new readers, you're not sure where the number one fits among your other comics that have like regular numbering. And then when, you know, they're coming up on like an anniversary issue, such as Action Comics 1000, they usually switch to old numbering again. Oh, it's so frustrating. So it starts with like the old numbering, then it goes to like another number one, and you have to explain to your non-comic buying friends, no, 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 it's part of the same, part of the same story. It is the next issue, even though it says number one. And then they'll go back to like classic numbering just because there's like an anniversary issue and you better believe that after that anniversary is over they'll go back to number one again so it's like really crazy just to keep track of you know which comic is which on your shelf yeah. from a collecting standpoint it's right? part of why i switch to digital comics um i only get them in paper form when it's like a trade paperback or like a, a original graphic novel right because then you can you know that it's like a single story yeah or at least enough of a story in a volume that there's a beginning and an end to at least that part of it right yeah it's not going to frustrate me from a collector perspective and it's not going to look ugly on my shelf and then in the meantime i can let comiXology take care of all of this organizing for me so i don't have to fuss with it anymore right right and you'll know that digitally you're always reading in order yeah exactly Right. And you never miss an issue and like you don't have to you can sign up for like a subscription. And it's also really easy to drop off on a series on Comixology, which is great because when you have like a when you've got a pull list at a shop, you sort of feel guilty just like suddenly dropping everything because like they, I don't know, killed all your favorite characters or they made them all scrolls or whatever the hell they did this month. 
Um, but on Comixology, there's nobody to feel guilty about. You just unsubscribe. Well, and and a pull list is a commitment because because once you've said I want you to get these comics for me every month, you have to go back to that shop and pick up your comics. Uh, at some point like you can't yeah i mean you could just abandon the comics with them some shops force you to purchase them ahead of time other shops um they just hold them and then after a certain period of time they go back on the shelf other shops they're just stuck with it and it really depends on what your pull list is because the more obscure your pull list is the more likely it is they're going to be stuck with inventory that they don't want right which is bad for the store but also also bad for you because you don't really have the freedom to explore other shops you don't Mm -hmm. have the freedom to go buy your comic somewhere else in in another week or whatever like you always are committed to that shop like that's your shop which is fine if that's what you want to be but if you are sort of playing the field a little bit it can be a little (laughs) it can be a little tough right yeah and like the worst part of it too is that pull lists are so important for direct market shops um because they guide their ordering right like uh in in direct market comics we, the readers, are not the primary customer of Marvel and DC. It's the comic book shop, right? Um, the only sales that they count are what the shop ordered, not what we bought from them. Right. And so our pull lists are guiding how much they're going to buy of something. And our pull lists are determining which, you know, which things are going to be a hit or not. And then, of course, they're like variant cover schemes and stuff. Right, right, exactly. Um, and if you don't put something on your pull list and you don't pre-order, then the shop doesn't know to order it. So, like, we can make or break books at the direct market with those lists, which... I mean, I personally grew to hate um, because there's just so much effort to organize. Like, uh, instead of just going to a bookstore and picking up something that looked cool, I had to, like, read, you know, previews or whatever and, like, combing through the newsarama previews months ahead to pre-order this, like, one cool comic because I actually wanted it to happen. And if I didn't pre-order it, maybe it wouldn't. Right, right. And you you wanted to make it worth it for the shop. You have relationships with people at the shop. Mm -hmm. So then you feel, uh, like in their debt a little bit to yes. like support them. <laughs> yes. So then you're like, because I want to support the shop and I want them to succeed. Yeah. I want to help them. And you feel this. like a monster if you bought something at Indigo. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. I bought Velvet at Indigo. They had it and you didn't. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And so I I was on a list for a bit and then I eventually I, I was like, no, I can't be on a list because I can't be that committed for that long like I, I need the freedom to be able to go to like different shops and pick up the comics when I want because my life isn't a <laughs> life where I can consistently buy comics every week like clockwork like things happen yeah the happiest I've been before comicsology the happiest that I've been as a comics consumer was when I was just buying whatever comics I wanted whenever I wanted just like I would go into a drugstore and maybe pick up an issue of She-Hulk because actually at that time She-Hulk was in like freaking drugstores which right. I don't think it is now um i don't think any comics get sold in like grocery stores or drugstores at all anymore yeah, no, the, i can't the, think of the last time that i saw anything except an archie double digest yeah there's the archie double digest and the mad and that's about it and mad it qualifies as a magazine so it's not even really a comic because they they sell it on on the magazine racks or it's thing. brutal right although i think i think it's marvel they're trying to they're pairing with archie which is like a weird pairing but they're pairing with archie to try to create their own double digests Okay. So they're gonna see if that's gonna work for them. I mean, it might. Yeah, like like a Spider-Man double digest. Yeah, or something like, a like Hulk that. Double digest. Yeah. What you do is like you reprint a bunch of old stories, and then like maybe there's something new. 
Um, and it's just something to like, you know, give the kids in the store so that they stop bothering their parents. Oh. And it only costs like a dollar or two. So like the parents are like, oh, take it, get away. That's interesting because I always feel kind of bad for people who only have experienced Archie through the double digest, especially now, because now, like if you're in the direct market and you're going to comic shops, you get a whole different, mm-hmm. more modern Archie than anyone else in the public is experiencing the public has thinks that like archie has never changed and you know what just... though i worked in indigo for a while um a couple years ago and they actually did really well with the archie issues like they've okay. got spinner racks uh by the, the cashier and they've got all the new series all like the, the archie ones? horrors cool. that's good um the mark wade stuff and they also have a pretty prominent spot in a lot of bookstores that's so good. i think archie and honestly, I think like the medium-sized publishers are doing way better um, at understanding what the bookstore market needs than Marvel and DC. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Cool. So let's get back to you because <laughs> we've been yeah. talking about the market a lot. So your next thing—it's—it's it's a comics newsletter that you're doing after Women in Comics. What what is this called? Yeah. So I'm doing this project called the MNT, MNT. which is the monthly newsletter thing, um, and it's a Patreon-supported newsletter. We uh, basically you sign up. Uh, pay us $1 a month and we send you a giant PDF on the first of the month or first Wednesday of the month of a bunch of international comics news from the previous month, a couple feature essays and reviews, uh, you know, some criticism. And then in the mid-month, we'll send you a little supplementary newsletter um, for a little bit of extra. And I do that with uh, Christian Hoffer from comicbook.com, Steve Morris, uh, ex of Comics Alliance, CBR, etc., similar to me, uh, Vernita Vergara, who primarily writes at Book Riot, um, and she's like a manga manhwa kind of person, and Kirsten Thompson, who is a linguist and does some translating and stuff like that in comics. Oh, so you can do like more international stuff like the bond yeah. and stuff like that mm-hmm. because somebody on your staff understands yeah and then john eric christensen who mostly does uh lgbtqa stuff and interviews with web comics creators and so forth so we've got a pretty good solid you know core team what made you decide to go independent and like pair with all these like prominent comics journalists how did that happen so christian and i were chatting a lot um on twitter and then we started skyping and we were talking about the difficulty of running an independent blog and how hard it is to monetize so there's a ton of really like you know substantially sized comics blogs um, they get pretty good traffic and like not one of them has ever actually managed to monetize. And, you know, it's really hard to make that jump. Like there's a really, even if you're getting like, say, 200,000, you know, unique visitors or something, that may not mean that you actually have a viable business there, even though that feels like a lot of traffic. Right. So we thought, why don't we try a very small project where it's monetized from the get go and its growth is completely determined by um, what we get on Patreon. And he'd been talking to me about this extremely long running wrestling newsletter, which um, was like super, super comprehensive. And it was kind of like the, you know, like the wrestling journalism of note. I don't actually watch wrestling, but it sounded like a cool idea. So um, we got together with Steve and we started on Patreon and it was just like, you know, one mailing a month at that point. Um, And our first escalator goal was that once we hit $50, we would have a guest essayist. Um, and we hit that pretty quickly. And so, you know, we've been expanding every time we increase our Patreon amount. What are you finding? Like, are people, like, really supporting it? Is it growing faster than you thought? Um, it's growing pretty slowly, which okay. is actually good because okay. that's what we wanted. Cool. Um, we wanted a small project that we could, uh, like, 
spend time nurturing and figure out what we want it to be. Um, we do find that our readers, the, the patrons that we do have are pretty dedicated and believe in the work. And we are starting to, you know, be seen by industry movers and shakers and so forth. Um, so it's getting some attention. I don't really want it to blow up into a huge project tomorrow. Um, right now, we're pretty happy with uh, the slow and steady growth that we're having. It's something that I'm interested in. So, so you should totally if, if, subscribe. If, if, I, if I want to subscribe, is it like a dollar a month? Like, what yeah. do I have to? What do I have to do? Yeah, it's just a dollar a month on uh, Patreon slash Comics MNT. Yeah. Um, and then we're gonna email you two PDFs a month um, with a whole bunch of international comics news and that, some features. That's awesome. And a dollar Canadian or dollar US or like I don't know. <laughs> like I have to, to check it out, but like. That sounds amazing. Like if I'm getting like comprehensive journalism and it's it's just a dollar and and it comes directly to my email. I think we're doing a pretty good job. Actually, uh, Vernita just won the Harpy Agenda micro grant for. Um, <laughs> sorry, Vernita just won the Harpy Agenda micro grant for uh, marginalized comics journalism. Oh, cool! I for, didn't even know there was a grant for com- yeah, for comics journalism. Marginalized it's um Xing Xing Ying Kor, who's a independent comics cartoonist. Um, and J.A. McLean, who is a comics journalist and also an editor. Sometimes. That's awesome. Like you never know what's out there until you actually until you actually look. Right? Comics is such a small community, but there's still so many sides of it that we don't get a chance to see. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's really cool. So, so y- you have like some pretty heavy hitters. You know, you you started writing about women in comics. Are are you happy with uh, the amount of work you've been able to do in that area? What are your sort of aspirations in terms of writing uh, about comics and minorities in comics? Um, I'm pretty happy with the work that I've done so far. I have a lot of plans for, you know, the rest of the year um, involving some new freelance work. Um, and I also run a, a tiny little micro press, um, where we, it's called Bleating Heart Press. Um, and we do some comics and anthologies and we're hoping to do a book next year of, uh, comics criticism. So maybe look out for that. That's awesome. Bleating heart as in. Yeah. Like a goat. Like, like a bah. goat. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So what kinds of things, uh, do you want to publish there and why, why did you start it? You know, we kind of started it as a lark. Like I've always, uh, I've always wanted to get into like ultra indie publishing because you can kind of do some really weird stuff, um, and you get a chance to really break break out new creators. Um, you get to give them their first chance to be published. Um, whereas if you're working at a, a larger publishing house, you know, you have to work with somebody who's much more established. Um, and I just like the vibe of you know, like creating your own project from scratch. So what we have published so far is our our main project has been an anthology called Secrets of the Goat People, which is why it's Bleeding Heart Press. Nice. Um, And that's going to wrap this year uh, at issue six. And um, as of this year, we're going to be moving into standalone comics publishing um, with some 16 pagers. Uh, One of them is like a sci-fi romance. Uh, One of them is a supernatural romance. And they're not all romance. Another one is um, a kind of semi-autobio comic. Cool. About... It's about a homeless girl um, who, well, formerly homeless, um, and she's looking back at her time kind of squatting in this, like, punk, uh, it's hard to explain, it's like a sort of punk uh, event slash meeting space, and the writer of it, Rosie Knight, um, is based on her own experiences where she found out later on that there had been a whole bunch of, like, really crazy shit going on there. 
Um, and so it's kind of about her discovering that and reflecting on her experiences. And That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how like when you discover that like weird stuff is happening where you've been sleeping, like it totally reforms the context of like stuff that you went through. Because like looking back, stuff that had one meeting, one meaning before might have a completely different meaning once you get new information, right? Yeah, it's like when you discover something really dark about your parents. Not that I have. My parents aren't that dark, but... <laughs> <laughs> totally, but but she 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 did? Yeah, um, so Rosie was homeless for a few years. Yeah. Um, she no longer is. Um, she actually lives in Long Beach with her husband, who's comic creator Nick Marino. Okay. And, you know, she's doing really well now, but she was in, you know, like a bad place in her life, and she was, you know, bouncing from place to place and squatting. And I mean, that makes you really vulnerable, like that creates a situation where people can take advantage of you. And so when she's looking back on this place, which is called Milk House, um, and realizing like the things that could have happened to her, but didn't. Right, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's interesting. It's sort of a cautionary tale a little bit, but also like a tale of survival and and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Tell me about secrets of, a, of the goat people. <laughs> Because that seems to be your, like, flagship thing. What What is that right now? So, Secrets of the Go People is an anthology that combines um, short stories and short comics and illustrations. Um, I'd always wanted to do a project that mixed comics in with other forms of media. Because I think comics is often so isolated and, like, doing its own thing. Or when it does get to appear in, like, a, a literary magazine, it's sort of, like... A supplement. It's like an illustration of the far more important work, which is the writing. Right. So let's do this in a comic style because that'll be edgy and new. Yeah. And current, right. Right. Um, but we just wanted to do something that would balance it. Um, so it's usually about half and half, half comics uh, and illustration and half writing. So and that, that could include uh, short story or poetry. Um, and in one issue, we did a photo essay, which was pretty cool. Um, so we've published a number of really cool creators, some of whom are starting to get their bigger breaks <laughs> elsewhere. Like who? Oh my goodness, I can't even remember all the names. <sighs> I'm not a name person. Okay. But there is, in fact, a lot of cool people. A lot of cool people? Okay, <laughs> Many cool. Many cool people. So yeah, so a lot of cool people that have been published other places. Uh, so just check out uh, Bleeding Heart Press and check out Secrets of the Goat People, because then you'll find out who the people are. <laughs> Whose names I can't remember at this moment. Yeah, and then, and then you'll be like, oh... That guy or that girl, yeah. or, you know, that person. So, yeah, totally do that. Um, yeah, so that brings us to, I mean, you're doing all these, like, micro-pressed sort of things. Mm -hmm. you, got, you got the editing of the anthology and stuff. But that brings us to what you're doing with Toronto Comics Anthology because you're doing the comics journalism, but you're also a bit of an editor, right? Mm -hmm. So now you're editing Toronto Comics Anthology, All As Good As Gold, and uh, how did that come about? You you became the assistant editor to a uh, past guest that we've had on Speech Bubble, Stephanie Cook, right? Um, I actually just saw a job posting for it. And I was like, hey, I would absolutely love to get into editing anthologies like at this level, because I haven't really had a lot of experience working in this format before. You know, I've been doing a lot of the micropress stuff. Um, and so I applied and I sent in my resume. Um, explaining like what I'd done with Bleeding Heart Press and some of the like freelance editing that I've been doing. And I met with the publisher and we had a really good conversation and then I was in. Yeah, Andrew's a really nice guy. Did they know of you before? I knew Stephanie um, sort of like through comics journalism circles and we'd done a few panels together um, at local conventions. Um, I didn't know Andrew before, but 
I, I'm think he'd heard of my site. Right. And and had you been familiar with Toronto Comics Anthology? They'd been around for a few years yeah, at I've, this point, right? I, I've read uh, some of the previous volumes and I've had friends that are published in it in the past. Cool, cool. So what is it like uh, being on the editorial side of that? Like pulling it together in the anthology? Yeah, or? because because we've had a lot of people on the show who've been published and maybe it's their first work that they've had to like formally pitch and actually, you know, execute. But what is it like when you're like the administrator and you're 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 sort of wrangling all those people and trying to uh, put it together. It's a lot. Um, it's a pretty short time frame. Um, and you're, you know, balancing all these different teams. Um, and one of the things that I really love about working with the Toronto Comics Anthology team is that um, Andrew's really interested in putting out really good books. Um, and in he's also interested in giving the creators involved all of the editorial support that they need. So that means that there's like many, many rounds of editing, which is not necessarily the case um, for most kickstarted anthologies, which are mainly, you know, just like curated. So you pitch, your pitch may or may not be accepted. And then you'd submit a script that's accepted with minimal editing. And then it's on to art. And again, it just moves really quickly, right? Um, for Toronto Comics Anthology, we did... Uh, we were with them every step, basically. Like, we had to prove character design, script. We did rounds of editing. Um, right now, we're, like, variously on coloring, inking, and lettering with our, our teams. And also just, like, balancing the relationship between the writers and the artists. So it was a really hands-on experience. And I learned so much in, in working on this book. Yeah, because... Andrew is really organized. This is Andrew Stevenson. He's so organized. Uh, or Stephen Andrews, as he sometimes likes to be called. But, but <laughs> Andrew Stevenson. Uh, we've had him on the podcast before. I've mentioned that before a bunch of times. So if you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me talk about it. Uh, go back in our archives and listen to his interview with uh, Nelson DeRocha, who was his original uh, editorial partner on Toronto Comics Anthology. Uh, very, very fascinating. But this guy is super, super organi organized down to the letter. So he has like multiple stages of editing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's like everything is timed out the yeah. way that they needed to be to get to the Kickstarter and have certain deadlines and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, since everything is so timed out so perfectly, what happens when you have to deal with somebody who is a little bit slower or doesn't make their deadline or is maybe wants to make their deadline, but is like far away from it or, or is going to be late or something and has told you? Well, we have had creators be late on this anthology and there is some time padded in to account for that. Um, and because there's so many checkpoints, as long as they can make it up at another checkpoint, it's it's kind of okay. I mean, right. obviously, if you miss the first deadline, that's like a terrible sign. <laughs> but if it was the third deadline, like say you're the artist and you came through for character design, you came through for thumbnails and pencils, and now it's the coloring state or now it's the inking stage. And like this was a little bit late. It's not too scary, you know, as the editor, because y you've already got like some belief that they're going to be able to pull through. Um, and you just kind of check in with them more often um, and see what you can do to help. One creator, we um, brought on a letterer uh, to help her out because she had uh, like some technical issues. So she lost her original pages and had to redo them. Um, so, you know, we brought in someone to letter instead of her doing it herself to take some of that pressure off. Um, and you just try to support them. Yeah. And, and you kind of have to support them. Like the beauty of this process is 
it's the first published work for a lot of people. So it's the time that you need the most coaching and the most stages and the most uh, shepherding, I would say, and yeah, want that. for sure. Um, well, we also brought on some more experienced creators, which was good because it kind of balances, right? Like, you know that, like, Andrew Wheeler is one of the, the writers um, right. and Kat Verhoeven uh, is one of the other creators and she's run, like, two web comics. Um, so you know that they're going to be able to to meet the deadline and that balances out for some of the less experienced creators. Not that we had a lot of problems with even our least experienced creators. I think mostly most of our creators have hit the deadlines and not had a lot of problems with that. Right, right. Absolutely. And it's it's a quality book. I mean, you get uh, introductions and forwards from some of the best uh, you know, professionals in the industry uh, who live and work in Toronto. Like, I think the forward is written for this volume by Chip Zdarsky. Yes, it is. It's very funny, too. Who's been on this uh, very podcast in a, in a live episode. Um, but uh, and like the cover art is always is always good for a long time. Uh, the cover was done by Adam Gorham. Mm hmm of uh, i think new mutants now but now it's uh, it's irma right yep uh irma from raid studio i don't know how to pronounce her na- her last name i think it's like i, I don't, I don't really her know last how to pronounce name. it either i'm gonna be honest with you it's like kinevila or something Let, let's pull this up i know Ooh, it's that's like, tough i know it's like it, i don't even know if you have to pronounce the k in the end let me see if i can nail it uh, okay Irma I think we're just gonna go with Irma Irma K K yeah Irma K is good from Raid because we don't want to butcher your name Irma but your cover is really amazing it's so good so, we're so sorry so we're gonna have you on the podcast and you're gonna say your own name so we we all get it and we'll never get it wrong up. ever again exactly 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 so that'll be a future thing that l- listeners can look forward to uh, but the cover is great it's it's all the like different characters and aliens from you know the stories uh, sitting in Trinity Bellwoods Park right Right. Sort of. Cool. It's not all the characters from the stories. It's sort of like her her interpretation. Of her interpretation. Book. Yeah, yeah. Because because a lot of the covers they have a theme where it's like all the fantasy elements mm-hmm. of uh, you know of the comics themselves near some Toronto landmark. In previous volumes, it's been places like Honest Ed's, R.I.P. Honest Ed's, and uh, other ones, I mean, okay, R.I.P. Honest Ed's, but it wasn't actually a good story. Yeah, it wasn't a good story, but because, you know, Toronto history and stuff like that. Uh, I, I fell once at Honest Ed's. No. But I, I digress because because the linoleum yeah. slopes. So there was, like, there was like a weird dip in the linoleum. And it was sort of not really a indoor pothole, but kind of close. And they don't tape anything, right? So, like, sometimes um, you can't actually see that there's a ramp coming. Right. It's just like subtly you're, you're going down. You're like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was really weird. And it, and it would go back up, like, really fast, too. So, yeah. anyway. But, like, yeah, the last volume, it was Honest Ed's. And then they've done, like, uh, Union Station and mm-hmm. other Toronto landmarks. But always with, like, fan see characters uh sprinkled throughout i would say yeah i mean i I really love this this cover actually i think it's like one of the cutest that they've done um and honestly i think because it's like five volumes in it's getting a little tough to find you know like 
that great Toronto landmark, but Trinity Bellwoods luckily has such a recognizable gate. Right, it does. And I feel like there's more to go. Like, I feel like there's more places you can go. There is, um, but you kind of have to like, I don't know, think about like the larger Toronto right. instead of like concentrating as much on downtown because like the, the biggest, most recognizable landscapes have or landmarks have mostly been taken. So it's kind of like... Spreading your wings a little to see what else is out there in the city. Right, because everyone's seen the CN Tower. Like, yeah, like, what do you think? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so for you, how has this experience been uh, helping Steph? Like, what is your role in relation to her? Because she's the lead editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should mention that... Uh, at the time that this volume is being produced, uh, Andrew is sort of transitioning from editor to like full on publisher, and you guys are sort of taking over on his behalf. Um, so I wanted to get to know like what that transition has been like for you, and like how you and Stephanie, you know, sort of view view your role. How do you view your role in relation to hers? So. Um- how we split the work is that um, each editor got a portion of stories that they were going to be in charge of, and we did the primary editing. Um, and then when I feel that my stories are strong enough, I sort of pass them on and be like, okay, it's time for you, Steph and Andrew, um, to see like what, what last edits there are. Um, and Stephanie was, you know, like the, the guiding light for like how we put the book together. So like when we had our first meetings, checking out the pitches, you know, she obviously she had the final say, but she also like, you know, she had very strong ideas of what she wanted this uh, volume to be and how she wanted Toronto Comics to move forward. Um, and then Andrew was really good about like, you know, stepping back because he's moving into the publishing role. Like he let Stephanie kind of do her own thing. Um, but I think it's been a learning process for everybody involved. Um, like obviously for him, he had to put down on the page things that had been living on his in his head this whole time, like processes and so forth. Um, and for Stephanie, um, you know, like she obviously has managed me. <laughs> so like it's new for her as well. Um, and it was great for me because I've never worked in a project of this size. Uh, so I think we all learned a lot. Did it feel like a partnership rather yeah. than like a boss employee sort of No, it's not like a partnership. Um, like obviously Steph and Andrew have the final say, but I mean, I actually like that (laughs) because in a lot of my other projects, I've been the boss. So it's been good to have somebody else uh, to bounce ideas off of and to be the final say. Well, and it's good to know where they're coming from because you've been in that boss position before. So you can sort of empathize with their, uh, where they're coming from as well. So it's good. It's good for like a working, uh, working relationship, right? Yeah, for sure. It was a really good working relationship overall. I think we all got along pretty well. Um, like our first meeting was like not awkward at all. That's awesome. Um, and I should mention that Toronto Comics is kind of becoming its own cottage industry. Yeah. Like Andrew is moving into publishing because they don't just publish the Toronto Comics anthology mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, they're publishing like Wayward Sisters, and uh, they want to. I, I think they want to get into other books as well. Yep, I've heard. I've heard of some other books that are coming, uh, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't think I'm supposed to say anything yet. Yeah, uh, but Wayward Sisters was really cool. Don't say anything. Um, not to mention there were other books that aren't associated with Toronto Comics that like spun out of Toronto Comics. Yeah. I would say like Hogtown Horror, not associated with Toronto Comics, but was started by Nelson DeRocha, who was uh, Andrew's partner on the first uh, Toronto Comics anthology yeah i think toronto comics has been like a really good force for good in the toronto comics scene like i mean obviously it gave people their first 
chance to be published but um it also gave people confidence to go on and do their own projects are you doing a story in this volume as well or are you just are you just doing the assistant editing no i'm just editing this volume i had way too many things going on to pitch a story on top of everything else nice uh, are you planning on continuing as editor for future volumes or do you want to just be a contributor? Like, I do you want to continue the relationship? Editing. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So now that you've done this and, and, and you guys are at this moment, uh, the Kickstarter is running, but by the time people hear this, I don't know if, uh, if the Kickstarter will still be active, but you're going through the trepidation of, <laughs> will we be funded? Will we not be funded? Have you, uh, tried to fund your own projects on Kickstarter before? This is my second crowdfunding effort. The first time was when I launched, uh, Bleeding Heart Press. Uh, I did that one on Indiegogo because I was so terrified of the possibility of a Kickstarter not actually funding because on Indiegogo, they let you take partial funds. Yeah, yeah, because because it's not an all or nothing proposition. Right, right. right. So that was like kind of like a good first experience. This is my first time on an all or nothing project and it's extremely terrifying. Uh, as we were recording this, we're in the last few days um, and we're like, you know, obviously counting every dollar that that comes up. I think it's going to fund. It's yeah, going to fund. They always fund. It might be nail-biting. <laughs> uh, I think maybe this is the most nail-biting of all the volumes, but I'm not sure because I, I haven't been totally keeping track of like the history and like when projects got funded and that sort of thing. Well, Andrew told me that they get one third, they typically get one third of their contributions on the last three days of the campaign. And that is a terrifying thought to me. I don't like looking at somebody like a Spike Shotman who runs Iron Circus Comics and she does everything through Kickstarter. I don't understand how she has like the nerves of steel to do that. Yeah, Spike Shotman, she does she does some really awesome like yeah. minority creator type books, right? Really cool projects. And she kickstarts like four times a year and you're like, how do you have like, how do you have the energy to sustain that? Oh, I'm already terrified just thinking about it. I think once you've built that's uh, true. an audience that trusts you, they'll keep coming back. Yeah, right? that's true. It probably does get easier with each Kickstarter and, like, you you know the audience is going to be there. Yeah, the community just just keeps coming back. And also, in, in the case of Toronto Comics, uh, this time, I noticed a lot more media push and I, I, a lot more marketing than they'd done in the past. Like for this volume, they got into some mainstream newspapers like the Toronto Star yeah. and stuff. They did uh, bus ads on the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission, uh, subways and buses and that sort of thing. And that, that had never happened to the same degree before. I think the, the TTC bus ads is like a, is like a new thing for them. Uh, do you know anything about like the the marketing push? Because I, I noticed that like they're really fanning out in terms of like we gotta get people on podcasts, we gotta get people in the newspaper, we gotta get written about. Yeah, so Andrew took the lead on that, but we've all been kind of working on that with him together. Um, we had like brainstorming sessions where we thought of all these different outlets that we could appeal to, um, and like the timing of each of them. Right now, I'm concentrating on like a last minute media push, so I'm trying to get um, I'm interviewing editors of other anthologies for our site as sort of like a, you know, quid pro quo. And I'm also, you know, arranging interviews on, on certain sites. Um, and Andrew's been working his butt off. Um, the TTC ad was a, a new thing. It's the first year that he's done it. It was kind of a weird harrowing experience, but um, I think it worked well. <laughs> it looks really good. 
it looked really eye-catching. I've seen pictures of it. I haven't actually seen it out yeah. in the wild. I've been like looking around for it, but I have not found it. But some people did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely people have posted photos. So, so it is working because the great thing about that is like when people find it and then they post it on social media, then more people are mm-hmm. aware of it, even if they haven't actually ridden on the subway or the bus. Yeah, I think the, I think the thinking behind the marketing is that Andrew really wants to expand the audience of uh, Toronto Comics Anthology outside of like those core readers, uh, the core comics scene readers. Um, In addition to the marketing, he's also been working to place the book in various stores around the city, like not just Indigo, but um, gift stores and so forth. Um, And, you know, he's really trying to build the company. Like Wayward Sisters is like step one and then there's other books to come and he really wants to make like a real go of it. That's amazing. And and it seems like the whole push is to, you know, expose like new creators, uh, fresh takes. Wayward Sisters was all, you know, women, female identified people, that sort of thing. I mean, maybe he's doing other minority anthologies, but like, I can't say, it, it but does, that might be the case. It does seem, it does seem like he's really interested in like new voices and diverse voices. Yeah. I think Andrew is really interested in building, uh, a bigger and stronger comics community and giving creators their first chance and like, and, and helping people, you know, get a leg up who would have a much harder time in um, other anthologies and at other publishing houses. Like he is sincerely interested in building community. Absolutely. So if you're a person who's listening to this, who's always wanted to do a comic, but has never felt your voice has been heard. And like all those problems with the mainstream industry that we talked about off the top have got you frustrated. And you, you know, you live in Toronto or you, you, you have experience living in Toronto uh, in your past, definitely try to pitch for like the next volume because this just keeps going like clockwork. So there's going to be another year. There's going to be another round just because you missed out on this one doesn't mean you can't contribute to future volumes. And uh, if, if what Megan is saying comes to fruition and there are other anthologies, like there'll be plenty of places where you can uh, Mm -hmm. pitch your stories and stuff. Um, In terms of like the launch date for Toronto comics is always the Toronto cartoon art, cartoon art festival, Mm -hmm. which is this diverse, like international guests, independent comic extravaganza at the Toronto reference library. And it's always the place where you debut the new book. Uh, You know, we're about, uh, I guess almost a month away now Mm because we're heading into april soon as this is being recorded uh, april 2018 so what are what's next for you like what are your plans in terms of the launch how do you think it's gonna go and then what are you gonna do after this experience so i think the launch is gonna be amazing and i think you guys are gonna love the comics um i have a lot of confidence in the comics in this volume i think uh some of the best that we've done yet um, so I'm going to be there at TCAF. I'll probably help out at the table so you can come and meet me. I'm also tabling with my Bleeding Heart Press, selling some other stuff. Um, you'll see me all over TCAF. I'm doing a whole bunch of things this year. Um, and after that, it's uh, hopefully more comics with the, these guys and um, some more micropress stuff. Before I forget, tell me a little bit about some of the stories inside uh, this volume. What are your favorites? What are the highlights? What are the things that you like about this volume that separates it from other Toronto comic uh, anthology volumes that you've read? 
So I would say the thing that separates this volume from the previous volume is that, um, you know, we got together and we had a, t a talk about what we wanted this volume to be. And what we wanted to do was represent more of like the diversity of Toronto on like every intersection. So, you know, more female creators, more people of color, um, more recent immigrants, um, and just like more of the city as a whole, instead of um, concentrating, say, on like downtown Toronto, showing some of the other neighborhoods as well to show um, like the richness of the of Toronto as an entire is an entire city. Um, so that's what I think separates this volume from the previous. Not that they were like terrible or something. Um, they were obviously pretty good too, but, or no, they were obviously very good also. Um, but we tried to do more and I think we did. Um, and my favorite story in this volume is called The Goose Fighter. And it is about a woman who is going up to York University um, in the summer and she's looking for a summer job. And she gets distracted from her job hunt uh, by a goose and is trapped in a conf deadly confrontation with this goose. I think I've been trapped in a deadly confrontation I, with a I goose I think before. we all have. Like, I also went to York. Um, and one of my final exams, one of my final, final exams ever, I got chased by a goose from, like, I don't know, the bus stop to the gym. So, like, it was like a 20-minute run from a goose. So, this story spoke to me on a deep level. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm glad you lived to tell the tale and have yes, escaped Yes, I, I survived the goose. That's They're amazing. vicious, okay? They are vicious. I mean, I... I grew up in Vancouver and like those Stanley Park geese. Oh my God. Are like crazy. I've heard. Yeah. They have no fear. No fear. No fear. Yeah. And like the weird like bleeding honk that they do. Yeah. And then that hiss. Just, it, ah. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's terrifying. So if you uh, need to learn some geese or goose survival skills, <laughs> definitely pick up uh, the volume of Toronto Comics Anthology. Uh, where can people find you on social media, Megan? You can find me on Twitter at the Megan Purdy. That's and, mainly it. And don't forget to like go to the Patreon, the MNT Comics Patreon, and subscribe. It's only one dollar a month. One dollar a month, and you get all these like veteran uh, comics journalists from all across uh, the landscape, not just here in Toronto. So uh, yeah, pick that up because I think like right after this conversation, I'm gonna I'm gonna subscribe. Yay! For excellent. sure, for sure. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, it's a really great comic. Go pick up Toronto Comics Anthology as good as gold immediately. You won't regret it. It's awesome. Awesome. And on that note, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one -on -one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and The Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward.
Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.